This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The book of Galatians was essential to the recovery of the biblical good news that sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It was through the study of Galatians that Martin Luther came to understand that faith is not a virtue that commends us to God, but an empty hand which God himself gives us and which he himself fills with Christ and his righteousness imputed. So it's good to have with us today Dr. John Fesco, academic dean and professor of systematic and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of a new commentary on Galatians in the Lectio Continua series, which you can find at the bookstore at wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hey, Scott. Good to be here. You have a commentary in the Lectio Continua series, expository commentary on the New Testament, and this is Galatians. Tell us, first of all, about the series. Oh, sure. What does it mean to say Lectio Continua? That's something that people might not expect to see on the cover of a commentary. Nowadays, when people go to church, they often hear preaching, and it's various series on how to have a successful marriage or how to raise successful children or godly children, whatever the case may be. And it's just a spotty kind of one passage here, one passage there. But in the Reformation and even earlier, you had preachers who would preach continually through various books of the Bible. So they would preach from Galatians chapter 1 all the way through the end of the book, or they would preach through the book of Genesis all the way through. And so that's what was known as the continual reading or the continual preaching through the Bible. And so this is essentially what the commentary series is all about. It's commentary series committed to going through essentially almost line by line through the entirety of the New Testament and each of the books that are contained within the New Testament. Let's talk for a moment about the importance of the book of Galatians. Okay. When we think, for example, about the Reformation, one of the books we think about is Galatians. But I get the sense now that however important it might have been, I'm not sure that it has the same significance for folks today. So try to cover then and now. Let's talk about both those horizons. Oh, sure, absolutely. I think that at least in the past, uh, because the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, the idea that we are declared righteous and holy in God's presence through faith, that that doctrine featured very prominently in the 16th century Reformation. And because that is one of the chief topics that the Apostle Paul deals with, not only in the book of Romans, as well as in other places in the New Testament, but also especially in the book of Galatians, this was a flat point, if you will, for not only preaching, also doctrinal controversy, as well as uh, exegetical commentary in terms of how people in the Reformation understood what Paul was saying about this particular doctrine. Um, So I think for this reason, you find that whether in sermons, in commentaries, or in theological works, there's frequent appeal to the book of Galatians because of the controversies over this doctrine. In other words, how are we declared righteous? Is it because we somehow earn God's favor through our good works, or is it because we are declared righteous on the basis of the works of another, that is, the works of Jesus. So that's, I think, in terms of in the past. And now, in terms of the present, perhaps we can say that there's been a lack of attention to the book of Galatians overall because of this lack of emphasis in preaching through whole books of the Bible, or because maybe 
Paul strikes us as being a bit too doctrinal and not practical enough. And so there's not as much of an emphasis or an interest, perhaps, in the book of Galatians when you and I both know, as well as many of the listeners know, how rich and wonderful the book of Galatians really is. Talk about the setting of Galatians. When was it written? You've already suggested who wrote it, to whom was it written, and what was the problem? Let's walk through those steps. Sure. Most scholarship dates the writing of the uh, book of Galatians sometime in the 50s, that is, not in the 1950s, but in the 50s, as in the very right after zero, if you want to put it that way, after Christ's life, death, and resurrection, his earthly ministry. And Paul had gone about and he had planted a number of churches in uh, Asia Minor. And in, in planting these churches, churches. He uh, left them to go about his missionary labors and then quickly got word, we're not sure as to how quickly this was, but he quickly got word that these churches had departed from the one true gospel that he and the other apostles had entrusted to them. And you see this quite prominently in the opening chapter when he says, if we are an angel from heaven preach to you a gospel other than that which we gave to you at first, let him be anathema. I say again, and he goes on to emphasize it again. So the question then uh, surfaces as to, well, what was the nature of the other gospel, as Paul says, if there even is such a thing as another gospel? What was this other gospel that that they had embraced? And so uh, Paul was engaging with what we now call a group of teachers by the name of the Judaizers. And these were teachers who came in and said, well, yes, faith in Jesus is absolutely necessary. But what they couldn't wrap their minds around is why and how a Gentile had no need to be circumcised. And for them, you know, in one sense, I always try to encourage uh, students and readers of the Bible to put yourselves in their shoes just to try to understand them a little bit better, in that here for centuries, members of the covenant had been circumcised, and this was one of the ways that they were designated as members of God's people. And now all of a sudden, seemingly inexplicably, now this was no longer required. So what they were saying is they said, okay, you have to believe in Jesus and— you also have to be circumcised. And Paul essentially said, no, that's not the case. And while it's a little bit of a theological shorthand, Paul said, no, we are justified not by faith and works, i.e., in this case, circumcision, but we're justified by faith in Christ, and it's faith alone, in Christ alone, nothing else that we can somehow bring to the table. Those who've done some work in the book of Galatians know or might know that there's a couple of different ways of setting Galatians just very quickly, North Galatians, South Galatians. I always have to go back and look up in my notes and, and try to remember which one it was I decided on. Yeah, I think I think I have to say the same thing in that as best as I can tell, you know, in one sense, there are the, the two theories have features that commend one another. But I, you know, I lean towards the South Galatian theory that that seems to bear more weight given information that we have in the book of Acts and from the rest of Paul's journeys. Do you think that when Peter stood up in Jerusalem at the council and said, brothers, we can't impose this yoke on the Gentiles since we ourselves are not able to keep it, mm -hmm. do you think that was before Paul confronted him or after? Again, there's evidence on both sides, but I want to say that that was uh, before Paul confronted him. Hmm so that the events that were going on in Galatia had occurred essentially before the Jerusalem Council. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. What are some of the unique features of this book that distinguish it from the other Pauline epistles and perhaps some other New Testament epistles? Some of the unique features I think we could identify is, first and foremost, that Paul is dealing 
largely, though not exclusively, but largely with the doctrine of justification. And he is spending a good three chapters out of the book, you could say, chapters uh, two, three, and four dealing with this subject. But then you know, not to be ignored, but also recognized, is the idea that Paul is also dealing with the doctrine of sanctification. And you can say that he deals with that in largely, though not exclusively, but largely in chapters 5 and 6. Those, I think, are two key features, not only dealing with justification, but sanctification. I think a third interesting key feature about the book is that Paul is using a lot of Old Testament imagery to explain the doctrine that he is setting before the Galatian churches. But what I find particularly fascinating, and at least in my judgment, a real problem for, say, dispensationalists. These are folks that think that Israel and the church are two distinct and separate entities, you know, the Left Behind series, is that Paul at a number of places, especially at the end, attaches Old Testament titles, say, you know, this is the Israel of God. Speaking of whom? Speaking of the Gentiles and the Christians there in Galatia, applying this title that was once exclusively used for Jews, now applying it to Gentiles as well. So you understand the congregation in to whom this epistle was written as mm-hmm. a mixed, ethnically mixed congregation made up both of Jewish Christians, that is, people who are ethnically connected to Abraham, who are also circumcised, and, and believers in Jesus, and then also believers in Jesus who are not ethnically related to Abraham and also most likely uncircumcised. Correct, yeah. So, you know, here calling uncircumcised Gentiles the Israel of God is it's like a, a clap of thunder in a small room. It's pretty amazing. And it shows what Paul talks about elsewhere, say, for example, in Ephesians 2, of bringing these two separate people together as one man in Christ. The dividing wall. Yeah. The dividing wall has been broken down. I, I remember very clearly when I was first coming into contact with Reformed theology, a good friend and a teacher of mine, Warren Embry, used to say to me, the dividing wall has been broken down. And I, I remember saying to him, but Warren, what about Israel? And what about the future? And what about the thousand years? And he said, the dividing wall has been broken down. And I said, what about? He said, the dividing wall has been broken down. <laughs> right. And he made me reckon with that essential truth so that you really can't understand the history of redemption as it comes to fruition in the new covenant unless you get to grips with the fact that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile in Christ, in his death, has been broken down. That's huge. Absolutely, yeah. So those are some of the unique features, I think, that really, among others, that commend the book of Galatians to us. One of the most interesting episodes, perhaps in all of the New Testament history, is recounted for us by Paul in Galatians 2. And he tells a story about an episode where he had to get after, as we say back home, correct, remonstrate with a fellow apostle. Tell that story and talk about the significance of it. Yeah. Basically, in the ancient world, but even in uh, in Israel, table fellowship was a key element of life. And what I mean by table fellowship is that just simply sitting down, breaking bread, and sharing a meal together. And for Israelites, it was unthinkable to sit down at a table and break bread with a Gentile, because Gentiles were essentially unclean. And so this is one of the reasons that, for example, you see such animosity between Jew and Gentile, or even between Jew and Samaritan. But in the wake of the ministry of Christ, you have that well-known incident where Peter is standing on the roof of the house of Simon the Tanner, and the Lord lets down a blanket and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, oh no, Lord, I can't do that. I've never eaten any defiled thing, anything identified by the Levitical law as being unclean. And he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He says, what I have called 
clean, you shall not call unclean. And the whole event takes place on the roof of a Gentile. And it's this idea that no, as we were just saying a few moments ago, the dividing wall has been broken down. The Gentiles are now included in the people of God. And so Peter initially, therefore, was willing to go and have table fellowship with Gentiles because of breaking down of the dividing wall between the two parties, all brought about by Christ. But then all of a sudden you had a um, party that comes into the uh, Galatian church, and they were not so keen on this. And Peter all of a sudden withdrew from eating with the Gentiles and basically kind of put back up the wall, if you will, because he didn't want to have table fellowship with them. And thereby treating them as if they were unclean, not fit, and implying that in some respect, at least they're second-class citizens and perhaps not even Christians at all. That's right, yes. So you even have Paul, for example, there in, in the second chapter in, in verse 13, saying that he labels this activity as hypocrisy, as, you know, Peter acting hypocritically, and basically saying you're compromising the essential truth of the gospel. Your conduct is out of step with the truth of the gospel. So by refusing to acknowledge Gentiles publicly as fellow heirs of Christ, members of the new covenant, one body, Peter was, according to Paul, denying the gospel. Yes. And it's um, it's quite stunning when you think about it. And one of the things I've ruminated over, you know, over the years as I've thought about this is that it's very similar to Peter's denial of Christ earlier on in the ministry of Christ. So in one sense, it's unnerving. But on the other hand, there are other things that we can look at it in terms of there are a number of things that I've reflected upon. First of all, that there is still the forgiveness of mm. sins, even when we make significant errors. Two, we're grateful for Christ's preservation of his church, and that, that that is key, that he sends Paul to ensure that the gospel is preserved. Uh, three, I don't know how many listeners there will recognize this point right away, but it shows that there's no such thing as papal infallibility, <laughs> you know, if Peter is the so-called first pope. And that's not a small point. If Rome wants to have Peter as the first pope, they must have him also as the first one to defect from the gospel and to be corrected by, as it were, the rest of the church, and called to repentance, which in the Roman understanding of things can't happen. In which case then, if they're going to have Peter as the first bishop and the first vicar of Christ and head over all of the worldwide church, then they've got to follow his example. Because how did Peter respond when Paul got after him? Long story short, repentance. He comes back around and he recognizes his error. And so that's a crucial element, I think, in all of this, especially in this whole interchange between Peter and Paul. When we come back, I've got another question that sort of follows on from this, and I'll set it up now by saying, over the last 30 years or so, there has been a significant redefinition of what Paul means by justification. And the school of thought that has articulated this is known as the new perspective on Paul. So when we come back, I want you to talk about the implications for the new perspective on Paul in this passage and in the whole of Galatians right after this. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain 
the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. When we talk about the new perspective on Paul, it goes back to 1980 when a couple of seminal essays written, one by James Dunn and the other by uh, N.T. Wright, discuss the Paul of faith versus the Paul of history. And their claim is that, large in part, the Reformation created the Paul of faith. In other words, this figure that is not really grounded in the history of the scriptures and in the history of the times around the scriptures. And in this Jewish setting. That's correct, in his Jewish setting. And I think that large in part this comes in the wake of the Holocaust, for example, in World War II, that people wanted to take a second look at how Jewish belief, Jewish theology, Jewish tenets of belief were shaped by negative views. And so they said, are Jews really legalistic? Do they really believe in works salvation? And based upon some research, they say, no, they really believe in Uh, salvation by grace, just like anybody else, so that they're not in any way legalistic. So when they see that and they say that, no, Paul is not ultimately refuting Jewish legalism, all of a sudden that casts an entirely different trajectory, an entirely different light upon key books of the New Testament, say, for example, Galatians or the book of Romans or even Ephesians. And the argument runs that Paul in the book of Galatians was not arguing against works, righteousness. So, in other words, the enemy there is not Pelagius, it's not semi-Pelagius. Pelagius was a, you know, a fifth century monk that taught that you were saved by your works and that, yes, grace is helpful but not essential. Semi-Pelagius is not really a person but an idea. <laughs> Uh, He he was only half a man. That's right, yeah. But it's the idea that, no, it's some sort of combination of faith and works, human effort and the grace of God. And so N.T. Wright, for example, says, no, none of those are the, uh, the boogeyman there in Galatia, but rather it's a question, according to the new perspective, on how do you define the people of God? Do you define them through the works of the law and the new perspective folks will define works of the law as circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath? Sabbath observance and eating kosher food? Or are they defined by faith? How do you define them? What is the passport, if you will? What is the identification badge that delineates the people of God from everybody else? So that's the the key element. So when they say, for example, and they read Paul, when he says that we are not justified by works of the law, N.T. Wright, for example, means to say there that Paul is saying we're not declared to be a member of God's people by circumcision, food laws, or Sabbath. So that puts it on a totally different trajectory. It's no longer a question about salvation, but rather a question of how do you define who the members of the church are identified? How are they identified? The challenge is at this point, at least I think for the new perspective on Paul, is that Is that really what Paul is talking about? I think one New Testament scholar by the name of Douglas Moo has said that are issues of how you define the people of God in view? Sure. But is that the primary issue there in focus at Galatia, or is that a secondary issue? And so what Douglas Moo says is that he says, new perspective folks, take the background and bring it into the foreground, and take the foreground and put it into the background, so that 
are we talking about the doctrine of the church here? Sure, that's that's an element of what we, you know Paul is discussing. But is that the only thing that Paul is talking about? No. And don't you see that in this episode with Paul and Peter, in that Peter is setting a boundary, right, relative to food laws. But in so doing, Paul accuses him of denying the doctrine of free acceptance with God through trusting in the person and the finished work of Jesus. So in Paul's mind, these two things are intimately related, and he doesn't have to divide them into two or deny one or the other. It's both and, not either or. That's right. You're absolutely right. It's it's a both and for sure. If you look in the history of interpretation of this, the writer of Ecclesiastes is right. There's nothing new under the sun. And that in the 16th century, surprise, surprise, you had Roman Catholics saying, no, Paul's not talking about the moral law here. He's simply talking about the ceremonial law. But there's uh, nothing new about the new perspective. And unfortunately, a lot of the people involved in the discipline, whether it's E.P. Sanders or Tom Wright or James Dunn, they're not deeply connected necessarily with the history of interpretation or the history of theology, and so not necessarily aware of the fact that in building up this school of interpretation, they're actually simply repeating things that were said already in the 16th century. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it was Richard Muller who said that there's one group. He says, systematic theologians as a group never read historical texts. And I want to amend the statement to say systematic theologians and New Testament theologians never read historical texts. Uh, And Tom Wright's honest about that. If you read him, he'll he'll tell you, look, I've read a little Calvin, but after that, I don't know very much about the history of exegesis. With all due respect to the contributions he has made— It's true. That's evident in reading his work. There are consequences for the interpretation of Scripture in not knowing the history of the way a book has been interpreted in the past. Absolutely. There are some other interesting features in Galatians. One of the things that might strike the hearer of Galatians as unusual in our time is Paul's language at the beginning when he says, anyone who does X, let him be anathema or let him be eternally cursed. Mm Mm-hmm. What does that mean, and how do you think about that and explain that to people? That initial statement coming at the opening chapter of the book of Galatians lets us know that it's not simply table fellowship that's Mm -hmm. at stake, but as you mentioned earlier, that salvation is in the scales, in the balance, at least from a human perspective in any way, in terms of what we do here matters. And so uh, Paul was essentially saying that if you preach another gospel, you lie under God's curse. Now that has been variously interpreted in terms of, well, that doesn't really sound as bad as it really is. It's just kind of something, so, you know, you're under a negative state. Well, I don't think that Paul would go to the trouble of warning people two times about the gravity of the situation if it was something that was not very weighty. And in this case, to be under God's curse, at least as I understand it, is to be set for hell, to be under God's judgment. And that's a horrible thing. If you put that in its Old Testament context, that's a serious sort of oath that the apostle in his office, writing officially under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's a very, seems like a very serious thing to say. It's not mere rhetoric not just a way of talking, however conventional it may be in a technical sense, that Paul means what he, what he says there. Absolutely. And the God whom he is invoking in this very strong way, this is the same God who caused the earth to open up and swallow people in the history of redemption and destroy thousands of Egyptians. Yeah, absolutely. Look at the Canaanites driven out of the land of Canaan. That's those are people under God's curse at that point. As you said, the you know the Kohathite rebellion. Uh, you know, you, you name all of the people that have fallen under God's curse, and it's it's a horrible thing to fall into the judgment of God. 
You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So that's the God he's invoking in a serious way. So we have a sense of the bad news in Galatians. When Paul says gospel, I want you to talk about what it means, because today the word gospel is being used a lot by a lot of people in a lot of ways. Where we're hearing the word gospel increasingly used as an adjective, a gospel this, gospel that. When Paul talks about the gospel in Galatians, what does he mean? In terms of the broader scope of history, God had promised to redeem a people to himself, to deliver them from the curse of the law. And you hear, for example, in the book of Isaiah, the Isaiah talking about the good news coming. And ultimately, that is the message that Paul is heralding. But when you get down to the very specifics, and I think especially when Paul elaborates this in the third chapter of Galatians, it's the idea that we all lie under the curse of the law, which in light of the earlier comments that we just made, is a very serious thing. But blessedly, we see this in terms of, say, Galatians 4.4, 4, that God sent his son who was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law and to deliver those under the law from its curse. And uh, you see this beautifully when Paul talks about Jesus being hung on the tree and anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. And so it's through Christ's perfect law-keeping as well as his suffering on behalf of those who deserve to suffer the curse of the law that he delivers us not only from the curse of the law but places us in a perfect state of righteousness so that the law no longer has a claim on us in terms of its curse and that we are considered not simply delivered, but also, as Paul elaborates in the latter part of chapter 3, that we are now considered sons of Abraham, heirs with Christ, heirs of the kingdom. As we said earlier in the interview, we are now the Israel of God, all because of what Christ has done. So the bad news is bad, but the good news is even better. We've talked a lot about the gospel, as we should, relative to the book of Galatians. But Paul spends a fair bit of time on the consequences or the implications for the Christian life. And he characterizes the implications in terms of fruit and walking by the Spirit. Just briefly, give us a sense of what Paul means by fruit and the importance of that. And what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Because in our context, I think in the late modern evangelical and Reformed Christianity— if I say walk by the Spirit, that might be understood in one way, and I wonder if that's what Paul meant by it. Yeah, I think that, first of all, it's important. I think that Paul talks about justification first, and then he goes on to discuss sanctification. And in the broader context, I think it's to show that our good works do not secure our right standing before God, that it's Christ's good works that secure our standing before God. But at the same time, when Christ redeems us, he inhabits us and dwells us with the Holy Spirit. And this is why I believe that Paul, for example, in the fifth chapter, shows in terms of what are the consequences of our redemption that we receive through Christ. And so he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And it's always good to distinguish between the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are unique sovereign gifts that the Spirit will give to select individuals within the church. Teaching, preaching, faith, uh, extra faith, that is. Administration is some of the gifts that Paul lists there in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4. But the universal manifestation of fruit is to be expected of all of God's people. And this is, if you will, the democratization of the fruit of the Spirit to all of God's people. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. About which you have written a book <laughs> entitled <laughs> yes. The Fruit yes. of the Spirit, which is available yes. through the bookstore <laughs> at Westminster Seminary, yeah. California, WSCAL. 
www.ruby.edu. So if you want to know more about the fruit of the Spirit, it's not as if you haven't spent some time thinking about that and trying to explain that. Yeah, so all Christians, all Christians should manifest the fruit of the Spirit in one way or another. And all of this is as a consequence of our justification for in terms of what Christ has done for us in our justification. So Paul elaborates in terms of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. And in this way, I think this is where I believe he invokes Old Testament images in terms of Israel following the cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night. Long story short, the cloud was a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, he could have, Paul could have said, live in the Spirit. He could have said, seek the Spirit. He could have said, prayed in the Spirit. But instead he says, walk by the Spirit. I think invoking that Old Testament imagery to say that in many ways, the Christian life is very simple. Simply follow the Spirit's lead and in terms of what he has revealed in and through the Scriptures and seek Christ as he has been revealed in the Scriptures. Draw near to him. And the imagery that I like to invoke is just as Moses was transformed and reflected the glory simply by being in the presence of uh, God on Mount Sinai. So too, we are transformed by being in the presence of Christ through the power of the Spirit, through the means of grace, uh, through word, sacrament, and at least subjectively through prayer. And so that, I think, is at its core, this simplistic and very simple nature of the Christian life. That's not to say that there aren't challenges, difficulties, and very difficult things that we may face, but in terms of its fundamental principles, that's what lies at its core. It's simple, but it's massively important because there are a lot of Christians sitting and waiting for a special, new, post-biblical, extra-canonical revelation from God. And, that, and that's what they think of when they hear the expression, walk by the Spirit. And you're saying, no, walk by the Spirit means to live in union with Christ, which is created by the Spirit through faith, but it's to live according to what God has revealed in Galatians and in the other 65 books of Holy Scripture. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's not some sort of second blessing experience, but rather this is something that is available to all Christian believers because all Christians are indwelt by the Spirit. There are a lot of really interesting things that we could mm -hmm. pursue, but I don't want to take away the listener's incentive to get his or her own copy of the Lectio Continua Expository Commentary on the New Testament on Galatians by John Vesco, who's been with us in Office Hours. One last thing. As you preached through Galatians and then recorded all of this for us in this volume, how did it affect you, change you personally? It reminds me of the simplicity of the Christian life, as we were just talking about. And just the other day, I was tired. It was a Sunday afternoon. Didn't feel like going to evening worship, but I, I was reminded by some of the things that Paul says there in Galatians. No, the preaching of the Word is a means of grace. I need that as desperately as I need food each and every day. And so just trying to remember that very simple message encouraged me to say, okay, as tired as I may be, get dressed and head to church this evening and pray that the Lord would use the Word, preach the Word read through the power and applicatory work of the Spirit to bring about greater conformity to Christ. And so, secondly, I think I would say is how in tune Paul was with the Old Testament. And it always fuels my own interest in learning the Old Testament a whole lot more because that was Paul's Bible. And uh, Paul knew it intimately and well. And so I figured, well, I better know it a whole lot better because it's a really big book if you consider just the Old Testament by itself. So it's always encouraged me to uh, learn more about the Old Testament so that I would understand the New Testament all the better. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes.
Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.